Well, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single greatest event in all of human history. It's really the most important event in all of human history. We looked at the cross in detail this past Friday night together. We saw it was certainly on the cross that Jesus absorbed the wrath of God and received in his own body the punishment, the penalty for all those who would trust in him. But without the resurrection, it's true, the cross would be meaningless. The cross would have been just like any other person who died for a good cause. Someone who suffered, someone who was executed. Surely, many men have suffered execution unjustly. Innocent people have been put to death for crimes they never committed. The cross without the resurrection is nothing more than a religious leader who just died for his cause. There's many different ways that we could think about and look at the resurrection. It's such a significant topic. There's implications for our sanctification uh, that we see in the resurrection. There's implications for dying and for living, as we just sang about. There's implications for understanding our justification in the finished work of Christ, that he was in fact raised for our justification. Yet this morning, we're going to look at the resurrection from the standpoint of how it enables us to rightly understand the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, the resurrection is what shows us the centrality of Christ and his work. As the kid's just saying, how is it that we know that we've been forgiven? How do we know that we've been made clean? How do we know that we'll go to heaven? How do we know that we've been redeemed? How do we know that Christianity is not a farce? How do we know that Christ will actually do the things that he has promised he will do? How do we know that he's able to do those things? See, the resurrection is what gives us confidence that Jesus is in fact Lord, which means that he is God, and Christ. He is the anointed one. The resurrection is the grounding of your faith because Jesus put his entire life and ministry on the line in his claims for the resurrection and essentially said, if I raise myself back from the dead, you have to believe everything that I've said and done. And if I don't raise myself, then I'm false. He pinned everything on the resurrection and it is so that we might know, that we might be confident. Certainly at times we lack confidence in our faith. We doubt at times, whether or not Jesus is really who he said he is. Sometimes we doubt whether or not he's able to save us in light of the sin that we see remaining. And yet the resurrection has always been central to the proclamation of the gospel. I invite you to take your Bible with me this morning and turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, and we're going to see an apostolic sermon. One of the apostles preaching, and in the central part of this message is going to be a focus on the resurrection. Jesus is going to be proclaimed by Peter here as the risen Lord and Christ. I want to read the text before you were breaking in mid-sermon here, as it were. Peter says in Acts chapter 2 verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 
God raised him up, losing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that Hebo died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up. And of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel know, therefore for certain, that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. The resurrection, which identifies Jesus and Lord as Lord and Christ, is the central part of Peter's sermon here. And really, you could break this down as uh, the resurrection planned in verses 22 through 24, the resurrection promised in verses 25 through 35, And the resurrection proved in verse 36. The resurrection planned, the resurrection promised, and the resurrection proved. Right now, what is happening is Peter is coming and he is preaching right after Pentecost. So you're looking at about 40 days after Christ was crucified. And Peter's central proclamation is Jesus, this man from Nazareth. And he's making the case that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. He was the Christ. He was the anointed one. Two months ago, Jesus was publicly humiliated. And he was not displayed with might and power. He didn't really look much like who you would expect to be a messianic ruler. Peter is telling the Jews in the beginning of his sermon at Pentecost that they're in the last days, they're in the Messianic age, the new covenant has come, the Messiah has been here, the coming of Jesus has dawned. And yet if you were a Jew at that time, you're looking at Jesus and you're saying, what I'm perceiving right now with my eyes doesn't line up with my expectations. See, Israel wanted to see the Messiah, but people were struggling to connect the dots. How could this man who was just executed be the glorious king whom we were waiting for? Jesus didn't seem to fit the bill of a Messiah in many ways. Think about it. If you're the promised deliverer, why do you have no militia, no trained soldiers? No one around you with any type of military might or prowess. Jesus didn't seem to fit the bill in many ways. His family had no reputation. He had no material wealth. Didn't even have a house that was his own. He was always staying in other people's homes. You tried to send him a letter, you couldn't. He didn't have an address. 
He was oppressed. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Scriptures teach that he wasn't big and tall and handsome. When, when people think of a ruler, they think of someone big and impressive to follow. That was what Israel liked when they saw Saul. They said, he looks like a guy that we could get behind. We like his height. We like his appearance. That would be a good king for us. Jesus didn't have that. Jesus didn't overthrow earthly rulers. He uh, was not a part of the, the zealots who were against Rome. He wasn't trying to undermine Roman authority. He submitted to earthly rulers. And he wasn't a part of the religious establishment. So Jesus never went to any of the rabbinical schools. He wasn't trained as a Pharisee. So in our day, he never went to Bible college. He never went to seminary. He, he never had any type of formal theological training. And so if you look at Jesus, you're saying, on paper, the guy does not really line up in any way meaningful that we would think of as a ruler to follow. Physically, economically, pedigree, his background, his religious training. This was shocking for the Jews. In fact, one commentator writes, it's difficult for 20th century readers to appreciate how profoundly disturbing the claim was to a Jew that Jesus was the Messiah. The Messiah was the central figure in Jewish thought. And when they thought of the Messiah, they would recall to mind passages like Genesis 49 that said, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. To him shall be the obedience of all peoples. And you look at Jesus and you'd say, where's the scepter? Where's the obedience of all the peoples? It's not lining up just yet. They would have thought of Psalm 2. Do homage to the Son, lest you become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath will soon be kindled. They'd say people were against him and he wasn't threatening them. He wasn't uh, bringing judgment upon them. So they saw no earthly throne. And so Peter is, has been explaining what's happening at Pentecost. Obviously, the Holy Spirit descended upon the group uh, with tongues like fire. Uh, the gospel is being proclaimed in different languages. Uh, people are having visions and dreams. And as the Spirit is being outpoured, people are trying to figure out what's going on. Their best explanation is a lot of people have had too much to drink right now. And that's what we're witnessing right now among the people here at Pentecost. Peter says, I want to explain what's happening right now. The Messiah has come. And in verse 22 of this sermon, mid-sermon, he begins to argue that Jesus is in fact Lord and Christ. Peter's sermon here could well be described as the preaching ministry of Martin Lloyd-Jones, logic on fire. He's going to take a logical case right now and he's going to make a point to Jews who are struggling to equate the messianic ministry of Christ and he's going to say he is in fact your Messiah and the central proving point of that is in fact his resurrection. It's what validates and vindicates him as the Christ. Resurrection is central to his argument in this sermon and the first section here, Peter makes the case that the resurrection was in fact planned. The resurrection was planned. In fact, you could say this, the resurrection was a foregone conclusion. It was inevitable. It had to happen. Because Jesus was utterly sinless, he could not lay in the grave. He could not see corruption. And that's the very point that Peter makes. And so he begins this uh, second part of the sermon, this transition. And in verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. So he's going from preaching about something 
to calling all of the hearers to pay attention. I'd be like saying cornerstoners, which is kind of a weird sounding word, but cornerstoners, listen up. Hear what I'm about to say. I want you to pay attention. See, when Peter's preaching, he's going to exhort the will. He wants every hearer to not view this as a lecture that you critique, a talk that you discuss what you liked and didn't like about it later. It's a message that's going to implicate your will and you're to hear it in that way. My friends, this is so gracious of God when you think about how Israel has rejected the Messiah, they crucified the Messiah, and now Jesus is sending them an apostle to come and proclaim to them again, here's a chance to repent. Here's a chance to believe your Messiah. This is the patience of God. And so Peter gets their attention. Men of Israel, listen up. Hear what I have to say. Pay attention. Each of you consider these words. Here it is. Jesus of Nazareth, a man. This is his humanity. You guys know the town that he came from. You knew his parents. You knew his siblings. He was a very real person. Verifiable, in fact, in his identity. This Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. What is he saying? He's saying, you guys know Jesus. It was happening in your midst. It was happening right in front of your faces. And Peter's saying that what God did through Jesus attested to his claim. It proved his claim. All of these works were done out in the open that he had a spirit-empowered ministry. What were the works and the wonders and the signs of Jesus? Well, every time we read about Jesus giving a sermon, what happened? People were struck. And they said, we've not heard teaching like that. That is teaching of one with authority. He teaches completely different than any other teacher we've said because he doesn't come and say, here's the message I'm getting from someone else. He begins to speak authoritative truth that originates from himself. Not only that, but what were the wonders and signs? Well, just start to think about it. He was casting out demons from the demonized, something that no human in his own strength was ever able to do. Jesus did things like turn water into wine. He calmed storms. He took a few little fish and bread and made that into meals that fed thousands. He walked on water. He gave sight to people who couldn't see. They were blind. He gave hearing to the deaf, people whose ears had never worked from birth. He gave paralytics the ability to feel and move their limbs again. He took the leprous and cleansed them of their incurable diseases. He raised the dead and he healed any and every possible malady that was brought before him. See, when people encountered Jesus, very often they were afraid. Do you remember what happened with the Gerasene demoniac? He cast out the demons and he went to go back to the people and they said, we actually would prefer it if you leave right now because we're terrified. When the disciples were in the boat and they saw Jesus calm the wind and the waves, they were terrified. When Jesus was walking on water, they were scared out of their minds. Why? Because they were encountering a manifestation of God himself walking on the earth. They understood that this was no mere man. He was attested to by God. He wasn't a magician. This isn't David Blaine or David Copperfield or Houdini. 
This wasn't the word of faith healers today that fake all of these healings from improvable diseases that someone's leg suddenly stopped hurting or their chronic back pain goes away. We're talking about someone who's, who's laying in a crippled mess that's never walked is suddenly running around leaping for joy and proclaiming that Jesus of Nazareth is the one who did that. Peter says it happened right in your midst. See, Peter's saying that, that faith in Jesus is not believing in your heart what your head tells you can't possibly be true. This is a faith that is grounded in reality. It's grounded in the fact that he actually did all of these things. They were attested to. Everyone could see it. And so Peter sticks it right to their conscience. Look at what he says. As you yourselves know. All right, what does a child say when they got caught doing something they know they're not supposed to? Oh, I didn't, I didn't hear you. I didn't know. Believe me, if I heard you and if I knew, I totally would have obeyed, but I just, I didn't hear and I didn't know. It's a misunderstanding. Peter says, you guys know about it. Everybody knew about it. In fact, Mark says in the beginning of his gospel that Jesus had become so famous early in his ministry that he could hardly enter into a town because droves of people were following him. This was widely attested to. In fact, a man came to Jesus by night. His name was Nicodemus. He was representing the Pharisees. He was of their group. And he said, early on in the ministry of Christ, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Peter says to these Jews, you know. You yourselves know. You've seen it. And this Jesus, verse 23, that was clearly God in the flesh, was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Nasby says the predetermined plan of God. That is exactly right. The idea that God had fixed this plan, he had set it in motion by his sovereign decree long before the day ever happened. It wasn't plan B. It didn't take him by surprise. It wasn't something that he was unable to stop. Rather, in the mind of God, this was according to the counsel of his good will, as the scriptures teach. We refer to this as the decree of God, his sovereign eternal purposes, his pleasure that every event, every situation that happens throughout all of history is according to his own will. My friends, this is a tremendous comfort for you in this life. The worst thing that could happen on earth is to kill God. That's pretty bad. And yet God says that was actually part of his predetermined plan. Everything that happens in your life, everything that's happened before you and will happen after you leave this earth, happens according to the meticulous plan of God. Nothing is left up to chance. Now, if you're in the Jewish audience listening to Peter, this would have been very important. Because where were many of these Jews the day in which Pilate offered them, do you want Barabbas? Or do you want Jesus to be set free? Many of them were in the crowd that day. And they would have been saying with that mom mentality, crucify him, crucify him. You know, as I was reflecting on it this week, I'm, I'm sure that there were those that were shouting it that didn't really believe it. I mean, he was so widely attested to. He had amazed so many. He, the, the entire city of Jerusalem was shouting, Hosanna, 
just a few days prior. There had to have been people that were standing there and they're thinking, as the emperor has no clothes, well, I'm not really totally buying into this in my own heart, but if the person on my right is yelling it and the person on my left is yelling it, I don't really want to be the one to stand up and say something different, and so I'm just going to yell it too. Crucify him. Put him to death. Treat him like a criminal. And so if you're listening to Peter, you needed to hear that the crucifixion was part of God's perfect plan that he had designed and predetermined. Because look at the next part of verse 23. You crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. I mean, that's indicting language. This is not softball. He's not removing human responsibility. He's not diminishing guilt. God, of course, coerces no one to sin. And so Peter's saying, you guys wanted to do it, you did it, you carried it out. And the means by which the Lord of glory went down was by the hands of lawless men. That was the instrumental means by which Jesus was crucified. Why does he say lawless men? Well, the whole thing was a farce and everybody knew it. They lied about the charges. They brought about false witnesses. They broke the rules of all of the legal proceedings to a fair and equitable trial. They didn't wait three days to convict him. They convicted him on the spot. They lied to Pilate. They lied to the leaders. They lied to the crowds. And the whole thing was corrupt from soup to nuts. Peter says, you crucified him and you killed him. Crucifixion wasn't merely torture. That wasn't the point. It was to kill someone. You never survived it. They made sure of that. Crucifixion was a death sentence. It was execution. Even if something was botched and you happened to live through it, they would break your legs so that you died. It was a death sentence. Jesus died a real death. He was, in fact, killed. The centurion watching functioned as the coroner's office. It wasn't left up to chance. This was an executioner who had done this many times. He was trained by the Romans. He was able to tell when someone was dead or not. He even verified it by thrusting a spear into Jesus' side. He was a professional. It's an important fact that Jesus did, in fact, die physically. The centurion functioned as the coroner. And so we can be certain that there was essentially a death certificate. Talking about that in contrast to my kids, I remember... In a call or a text from my wife, we were living in Florida at the time, and she said, um, yeah, the kids said that there's a, a, little, a little puppy sleeping in the kiddie pool in the backyard, and I'm pretty sure it's not a puppy and it's not sleeping. So I told them to stay away and you'll deal with it when you get home. So I came home and it was a very large possum that played possum a little too well and uh, actually keeled over in the kiddie pool. The point is they weren't familiar enough with death to make a proper assessment on whether or not that creature was living or dead. They thought it was merely sleeping, merely taking a little nap in the kiddie pool. It was completely dead. See, Jesus didn't swoon. He wasn't merely close to death as he came down off the cross. He was, in fact, certifiably dead. He died as a substitute. There was no shortcut to free sinners without death. And so Peter, as he's preaching, if you're sitting there, you're getting a razor-sharp distinction. That you're hearing, I and I alone am guilty. It's not just my sin that held him there on the cross, but I was actually shouting, crucify him. I played an active role in his death. And yet, that was God's plan to bring about salvation to the world. 
What kind of brain-crushing reality would that have been? To be sitting there thinking, I had a, a hand, I had a role in crucifying God, and I'm filled with guilt from that. And at the same time in this mystery, that's, that's how I'm going to be saved? That actually accomplished a purpose of God that was much bigger than anything that I even knew I was doing when I acted according to my own volition? This would have protected those in the crowd from despairing over the sin that they had committed? To not think, what if I had not done that? What if I'd stood up? I mean, even Peter, the one preaching it. What if Peter had gone to the trial and said, I'm going to stand up and bear testimony on Christ that what you're saying is false. Peter didn't do that. Peter ran and hid. Peter was complicit as well in the crucifixion of Christ. He was part of the reason why Jesus was killed. And now here, here he is preaching saying, even my compromise and my sin was used by God to bring about the death of Christ that now results in forgiveness. How comforting is that? God's sovereignty even over our sin. Jesus was tried by sinful men, torn and beaten then, nailed to a cross of wood. But verse 24, God raised him up. God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The idea is that the death of Jesus was, was brief. It was temporary. And, and Peter uses this marvelous way to describe what took place. He says it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now you remember when you were a kid, the question that would come up often, particularly if you grew up in the church, was, was can God make a rock too big for himself to carry. And say, man, I don't know how to think through that. God can do everything. Can he make a rock too big for himself to carry? And then you grow up and you become an adult and you think, well, can God build a rock that's too big for himself to carry? The idea is if, if God is all-powerful, if, if Peter is told by Jesus that all things are possible with God, then is anything impossible? Well, when God told Peter that, it was regarding God's ability to save sinners. It means that there is no sin that is too great that Jesus is not able to pay the penalty for it. But there are, in fact, some things that are impossible for God to do. God cannot lie. It's impossible. God cannot change. It's impossible. He can never break a promise. That's impossible. He cannot sin. That's impossible. He cannot be unholy. He cannot fail to uphold perfect righteousness and perfect justice. He can never be unfaithful. He can never do anything inconsistent with his own character, which is to say that he will ever and always do that which is perfect. If you remember the ironic statement made by the passers-by that are attempting to mock Jesus while he's on the cross. They said, he saved himself and look, or he saved others. Now he can't even save himself. You're absolutely right. He can't save himself and save others. So he's going to stay on the cross so that he can, in fact, save others. But in Peter's logic of the resurrection, he's saying it was impossible for Jesus to stay in the grave. It could never happen. Why? Well, he had no sin. He could see no corruption or decay. And he has an eternal kingdom, an eternal throne that he needs to sit on. He has an eternal priestly ministry that he needs to partake in. 
And so Peter says, it is absolutely impossible for him to be held by death. Says that God loosed the pangs of death. Literally, he removed the birth pains. It's kind of a strange analogy there. You think, why are we talking about birth pangs and death? Well, the idea is birth pangs bring forth eventually life. Here, the birth pangs of death were loosed, and Jesus came forth not from the womb this time, but from the tomb. He came forth as God loosed the pangs of death. My friends, this resurrection was planned by God. And Peter is reminding all of the hearers that the resurrection is the next in the line of attestation that Jesus was in fact the God-man and it was planned from eternity past. And then he begins to anchor this theological statement and he, he tells the Jews there that the resurrection was in fact promised by God. The resurrection is promised by God. And this was to provide joy and hope and comfort. When he says in verse 25, for David says concerning him, he's, he's not like today. Uh, today, if you're sitting in a service, you want the cross reference. Right? You want to know the chapter and verse that uh, that's being pulled from. Sometimes we turn back and look at the cross reference. Peter just says, David says concerning him. So have at it. The entire Psalter there. No uh, specific chapter or verse is given. But he's quoting Psalm 16 here. And David, as he does so often in the Psalms, is speaking in part of himself and in part of the Messiah. There are things he's saying that could not be true of David and things that could not be exclusively true of the Messiah. And he's, he's in a sense, intertwining these back and forth. And so he says, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. Why this hope? Verse 27, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Hades is Sheol. It's the grave in the Old Testament. It doesn't necessarily mean hell. It could refer to that, but essentially it's, it's the netherworld. It's, it's where you leave when you get put in the ground. You go down to the grave, which is Sheol. And the Holy One is a messianic title. It was used by Jesus. If you remember, uh, the demons came on the scene and they said, you're the Holy One of Israel. And Jesus said, be quiet. You're not supposed to talk about that yet. John chapter 6, Peter said, you're the Holy One of Israel. So the Holy One is the Christ, the Messiah. And David is saying all these years before, you're not going to abandon, you're not going to leave and forsake me in death. You're not going to let your Holy One See corruption. Four minutes after you take your last breath, your body begins to decompose. It doesn't take long at all. As soon as cells cease having oxygen through the blood coursing through your body, they begin to decompose. The, the outer membrane of the cells begin to break open and enzymes are released that eat the cells. And so that process begins immediately. It actually happens first in your brain because that's the organ that uses the most blood. And so it kind of works through the body in the most significant uh, blood and oxygen using parts of your body. Four minutes after death, the brain begins to decompose. That cellular work begins to happen. Four minutes. Stage one of decomposition. David says, when the Holy One dies, there's not going to be any corruption. Not one cell is going to begin to decompose. It's going to be unlike any other death, right? Lazarus decomposed. 
Everyone that Jesus ever raised from the dead had begun the decomposition process, but this Holy One will not see decay. It's impossible because he is, in fact, perfect. David, as he reflects on this, says, You have made me known, verse 28, the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence to be with the Holy One. And so Peter now says in verse 29, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So, process of elimination. Could David be talking about himself here? No. This is the logic. Why? Well, because David got put in a tomb. Right now, if we were to go dig it up, we would find probably some teeth. Everything else is going to be pretty decomposed at this point. There's going to be a lot of dust in the coffin. But David was buried. David never came forth from the grave. He underwent decay. He went the normal course, the way of all flesh. So how is it that David is talking about not being abandoned to the grave and not seeing corruption? Verse 30, being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. See, saying David was a prophet. David had an oath in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that he would always have a descendant that would be seated on the throne. That son of David was, of course, Jesus. If you remember the blind man, as Jesus is coming into Jericho, says, son of David. That's a messianic title that he's referring to. So the logic goes like this. Christ died, and yet he never decomposed. See, David is foretelling not merely that, that the Holy One would live forever, but that the Holy One would in fact die, not be abandoned in his death, and then he would rise again many, many years later. Pastor writes concerning this passage, Peter's argument from Psalm 16 can be summarized as follows. The psalm speaks of a resurrection. Since David, however, was not resurrected, it cannot speak of him Thus David speaks in the psalm of the Messiah. Hence, Messiah will rise from the dead. And so now Peter delivers this final powerful conclusion. This Jesus raised up again is one to which we are all witnesses. He's preaching for a verdict. Look at verse 32. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. We all testify. We've all seen that Jesus was raised. It was not a conspiracy plot hatched by a few devoted followers. In fact, the conspiracy that was hatched was by the chief priests and the soldiers trying to come up with a way to save face. In fact, they were all witnesses to this. Just think through the list. Jesus was first certified as dead by the coroner's office. His tomb was then sealed. His tomb was then guarded by soldiers who were guarding it, not simply with their job security, but with their own lives if they failed. There were eyewitnesses to the bodiless tomb. There were eyewitnesses to the angels at the grave. There were eyewitnesses to the risen Lord himself. And then all of the disciples, except for one, gave their lives for the reality that Jesus was a resurrected Christ. 
Think about what it looked like right after his death. Everybody went back to their fishing boats, according to John's gospel. He died and and they thought it was all over. It was a good ride while it lasted. We're, We're going back to the family business. We're back in the fishing boats. And then what happens? The risen Christ comes to them. And now they're willing to spend and expend themselves in ministry for his sake. 500 eyewitnesses gave testimony to the risen Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 6. Peter right now is preaching a public sermon in the presence of thousands where he is claiming that Jesus raised bodily. First century cared about the truth. There were fact checkers then. The Washington Post did not invent the fact checker and the Pinocchio scale in 2007. It existed long before that. And so in the first century at this time, you would have had every opportunity to discredit the reality of the resurrection. Every opportunity to throw the flag and cry foul. Every opportunity to produce a corpse, to produce an alternative explanation that would be satisfactory. Never happened. All of them are witnesses. Peter calls them to that. And no one denies it. So he continues in verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. It says he's alive right now. He's actually already ascended, so he's gone back up to be with the Father. He's seated at the right hand right now. And the fact that you just saw and witnessed the Holy Spirit here at Pentecost was the promised helper, the promised comforter, the promised one that he was going to send in his absence. The Spirit being poured out on Israel at Pentecost testifies to the reality of the risen Christ now seated at the right hand of the Father. And so Peter repeats his central point. He's saying it clearly was not David. Verse 33, David did not ascend into the heavens. David didn't send the Spirit at Pentecost. David is not alive right now at the right hand of the Father in glory. No, David himself says, and now he he goes over to Psalm 110. So if you'd figured out in his sermon that he was in Psalm 16 and you flipped in your scroll back to Psalm 16, you'd be confused because he's quoting David again and now he's shifted to another psalm. He's in Psalm 110 and he says in verse 34, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He says he never said that about David. He said that about Christ. David said, when the Lord says to my Lord, when the Lord says to, to my deliverer, to my Yahweh, to my Christ, Jesus is Lord in Christ, is seen in the resurrection. The resurrection was planned, the resurrection was promised, and now in verse 36, the resurrection was proved. See, God proved the resurrection so that you and I can have certainty and confidence before God. Peter turns to his hearers after giving them this explanation about the promised resurrection. And he says in verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Let me translate this for you exactly the way the words would have come out of Peter's mouth. Beyond a doubt, therefore, no. That was what he actually said in that order. Beyond a doubt, therefore, no. 
You know about his life. You saw it attested to by God. You have the promise of God given through David. And now I want you to, beyond a doubt, know. My friends, this is a command in the scripture. It is an instruction that you are called to do. You are called to believe. And to know in what way? In the absolutely certain, beyond a doubt kind of way. Why? Because of everything Peter just told them. You're to be fully convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt. Think about the the burdens of proof, right? There's kind of a a descending scale or an ascending scale in terms of the burden of proof. The, The lowest standard of proof in our legal system would be a preponderance of evidence. That means oftentimes in a, in a civil case, you weigh out the evidence and you say, seems like this one is the most likely and that's enough proof here to adjudicate the matter. To begin to get a little bit more significant, the next standard is clear and convincing evidence, which moves from likely to highly probable. So you're saying, you know what? We think it's, it's highly probable that the event or the crime has occurred and therefore we can issue a conviction. The highest standard of proof in our court system is proof beyond a reasonable doubt. This is the standard for criminal proceedings. And the idea is that when someone's freedom is on the line, when, when you're talking about doling out a punishment, we want to make very sure that uh, we're erring on the side of caution. In fact, our Supreme Court says it would be better to let a guilty person go free than to wrongly condemn an innocent person. And so in the burden of proof, it's proof beyond a reasonable doubt. That means each and every element of a conviction must be confirmed by the prosecution at a level of proof beyond a reasonable doubt for a defendant to be convicted. So how is it that a jury administers that? How does a jury follow that burden of proof in a criminal proceeding? They're told this, you assume that the defendant is innocent and then let the evidence demonstrate otherwise. Peter's saying, I want you to take the highest standard of proof and apply it to Jesus. Let's start out and just assume he's just a man and he's not God. And now let's begin to apply the evidence and let's let the evidence demand a verdict. He said, you're therefore to know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The resurrection was the proof. And so the resurrection becomes central to apostolic preaching. It's central to the gospel. Peter has it central here. It's central again in Acts 13. It's central in 1 Corinthians 15. My friends, this is the message of the gospel. That God took on flesh. That the creator of the universe became a man. That he was born of a woman Conceived by the Holy Spirit and without sin. He was the second Adam born under the law. Born of a virgin. And in his entire life, he never made one mistake or one moral error. Just think of the magnitude of that. He never said one disrespectful thing to his mother. His entire life. He never disobeyed his father's instructions. He was never unkind to his sibling. Not one moment where he lacked self-control. He never coveted. He never lusted. He was never selfish or proud. He never feared man. He was not partial. He never spoke rashly. He never lost his temper. He never lied. He never shaded the truth. He never acted in unbelief or in anything that was contrary to the Father's will. And that's just a few of the things that he did not do. 
When you consider all of the things that he did do, he perfectly carried out all that he was required to carry out. He loved his father with his entire heart and soul and mind and strength. He kept the Mosaic law. He loved his neighbors. He learned obedience through suffering. And then he died. And so when he died, he died as an innocent man. An innocent man being punished for sin. And as the father poured out the penalty of the sin of the world on Jesus, Jesus became the object of God's divine wrath. God hates sin. He always punishes it. And so when Jesus died and he said, it is finished, it meant that he completed the mission. He completed the father's plan. There was nothing more to do. Nothing more required to bring salvation to mankind. And then he was laid in a tomb. And yet it was impossible for him to stay there. The tomb could not hold him because he was perfect and he could not undergo decay. And after he was risen, he appeared to many. He furnished proof of his resurrection. And then he ascended into heaven where he lives to intercede for his people. And he is not ashamed to call them his brothers. He was made like us in every way in order to save us. And by trusting in him, you can be reconciled to God and your guilt can be removed forever. My friends, this is the only way that your sin problem can be dealt with. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we might be saved. This is the good news. This is the gospel. And this is different from every false gospel, every pseudo gospel, every idea of self-help or self-improvement. One author recently said, the modern day gospel says God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Therefore, follow these steps and you can be saved. But that's not the biblical gospel. The biblical gospel says you're an enemy of God, dead in your sin and in your present state of rebellion. You're not even able to see that you need life, much less to cause yourself to come to life. Therefore, you're radically dependent on God to do something in your life that you could never do. He goes on to say the former sells books and draws crowds. In other words, to say God has a wonderful plan for your life and loves you, sells books. A lot of them and it draws crowds. But the latter message saves souls. See, in the gospel, God reveals the depth of our need for him. He shows that there's absolutely nothing we can do to come to him. We can't manufacture salvation. We can't program it. We can't produce it. We can't even initiate it. God has to open our eyes, set us free, overcome our evil, and appease his wrath. He has to come to us. My friends, every one of you in this room is guilty, and you're unable to please God. And so when you come to him, you don't ask Jesus into your heart. You don't invite him into your life. You don't pray the sinner's prayer. You certainly don't accept him as if he needs your acceptance. That's a misnomer. Rather, you come to him as king and Lord. See, faithful preaching leaves all of the hearers undressed before the righteousness of God saying, I have nothing to offer. And that's exactly what happened to Peter's hearers. Look at verse 37 and just see briefly here the response to the sermon. Now, when they heard this, they were all cut to the heart. It said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? See, Peter doesn't coerce anyone to get saved. He just preaches the truth about who they are. And as they hear it, they say, I'm coming to you saying, what must I do now to be right with God? Peter, we're seeing what you're seeing. We see our guilt. We feel our guilt. How do we fix what's wrong? How do we get out of this situation? 
Verse 38, Peter said to them, repent. Repent, turn from your sin to Christ. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And here's the promise. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What you're seeing right now happening at Pentecost is going to be yours if you simply trust in Christ. Who gets initiated into this? Verse 39, this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. See, Peter's saying you can be certain that this promise is for you. This promise is for you. This promise was for the Jews, and it wasn't just for the Jews, it was for anyone who's far off. That means that wherever you're at, you get this message, and all you have to do is trust Christ. Repent and believe. Peter got done preaching that sermon. It actually went on a lot longer than that. Verse 40 says, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. So the sermon just kept going and going and going. And then what did God do at that proclamation of the gospel? Verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 men, women, and children who were cut to the quick. 3,000 men, women, and children who saw themselves rightly. Perhaps for the very first time, God showed them the depth of their sin and the worthiness of Christ, and they turned to him in faith and repentance. That day, 3,000 dead souls, dead in their trespasses and sins, became alive together with God through Christ, and this was all according to God's plan. My friends, the resurrection is central to understanding Jesus. It validates his life and death. It validates every claim that he ever made. It vindicates that he is, in fact, Lord and Christ. And this was done for us that we might have certainty. That's the instruction. Therefore, beyond a shadow of a doubt, know this for certain. Will you pray with me? Lord, what a glorious work you did. I was so struck reflecting on your mercy in delivering this sermon. Lord, I know my own sinful heart, and if my son had just been crucified and mistreated in the way that Jesus had been mistreated, I would have said, you guys all deserve to burn in hell, and I'm going to walk away at this point. And yet, Lord, it was your kindness that, that wanted to come back to those who were your enemies, those who had spit upon the Savior, those who had a hand in putting him to death, and to proclaim to them not only their guilt, but the opportunity for pardon, the opportunity to be freely forgiven for what they had done. Lord, what grace and mercy there was even in that, to bring that message to those sinners. And Lord, it is no different to us. Lord, you brought the gospel to me, you brought the gospel to everyone in this room today. And Lord, that is an expression of your kindness. Lord, I pray that we would not think lightly of your forbearance, lightly of your kindness. But Lord, that that kindness might lead us to repentance. Lord, that might, that might bring us certainty in our standing before you. We love you. We praise you. We pray now that, Lord, as we sing, it would be with full hearts and clear minds in response to all that we've heard. For Christ Jesus' sake, amen.